So guys, I have a bit of a confession to make. I'm not actually sure if I really have that much to talk about with this game. Um, it's funny because I don't. I have no idea. I, I never know how long my videos are going to be uh, until I actually, you know, I'm done and look back and I'm like, oh, it was a 45 minute video or whatever. Um, once again, no indicative of quality. This is an awesome game. It was great fun replaying it. It was great re-going through it. Uh, it remains among my favorite games in general, uh, especially amongst the Zelda series in specific. But there's just most of the lore of Wind Waker is right on the surface. There's not actually that much to discuss or analyze within it. Now, I have a few things, but really nowhere near as much as, say, the incredibly interpretive Majora's Mask, for example. I will say this. Uh, I am an idiot. Now, if you don't know what I'm talking about, let me explain. Uh, once upon a time, this game was announced. It was called The Wind Waker, The Legend of Zelda. And I'm like, oh my god, this game looks terrible! And I was one of those people who looked at this game and saw the cel-shaded graphics and was just immediately like, whoa, what is that crap? And sadly enough, I was not alone in that. Quite a few people looked at this game and immediately were like, no, no, there's, this is going to be a terrible game. I mean, look at this thing. This, what is this crap, right? Well, obviously, uh, I have since completely 180'd my opinion on that matter because I think the graphics look great. Now, granted, I was playing the HD version, but even the GameCube version has aged fairly well to the point where it still looks good to this day, in my opinion. And uh, that's always that, that's that whole aesthetics versus quality argument that I've gone over many times again. I don't want to mention it here. The point remaining, though, that... Um, I was an idiot, and I didn't play this game for some time purely because I was like, oh man, what the crap is that crap? It's also funny, uh, as I've made this comment many times before, and I'm sure I'm not the only one, this is, this looks, purely from a visual aesthetic perspective, like it's going to be this light, cartoony, happy Zelda. This is probably the third darkest, most, most severe, most depressingly just wow uh, of the Zelda series, which is uh, rather appropriate, I think. It it does a nice job, too, in the story, in addition to using the graphics, to make you think that it's just going to be a fairly typical you know, Zelda-like adventure, and then completely pulling the rug out from under you and showing you just how bad bad can get. But I don't want to get too much ahead of myself. Uh, one other thing I want to mention uh, with regards to the aesthetics, they made an interesting choice that not everyone does. Most time when cel-shaded graphics are used, there's an outline, a visible outline uh, around the, the cel-shading. See the old, uh, you know, the Mega Man X cel-shaded stuff they did, or even the Tales from the Borderlands stuff is another good example of that. They deliberately decided to not use outlines, and I think that worked very well for them. It, it gives it a unique look to it, uh, which, which again, I personally think still looks good to this day, especially in the HD version. The other thing I like is the rhythm of the game. There is a great deal of rhythm to just everything about it. The presentation of the story, the animations, the music, the audio. Every aspect of this game kind of fits a beat, for lack of a better way to call it. And uh, that's also funny because the actual story fits that beat until it is broken fairly early on. Uh, if you don't know what I'm talking about, it follows Zelda Wind Waker. This is great, by the way actually does two, two, two jobs uh, to distract you very early on in the storytelling. See, most Zelda games have the, you know, you, you do the three dungeons, you find out what's going on, you do the rest of the dungeons thing, right? Now, that's sort of true for Wind Waker, but Wind Waker starts off by making you think this is going to be basically a Gaiden game. It has what is effectively very, very few ties to the old Zeldas. At least that's what you think initially. And then... Um, and then it's like, oh, and by the way, you're still doing the standard Zelda formula with the first two dungeons, so it's like, okay, so this is a Zelda game. Then you get to the third dungeon, and the island is cracked in half and in ruin, and it's like, oh, okay. And then pretty much from that point on, it just kind of turns everything on its head, and while you do have some classic Zelda aspects to it, most of it is kind of its own thing, which is appropriate, because I think Wind Waker is kind of its own thing. The, uh... So, let's just start going down my list. I only have about a page and a half of notes this time. Sorry, guys. Uh, this is the first of the two consequences of Zelda's choice. This is a world undefended. Um, this is a world in which there is no 
hero of time. He has been removed from its existence and reverted back to the other timeline. And obviously that has some very blatant and, and, and apparent consequences, including the fact that the people are so reliant on that kind of a thing that they lack the ability to defend themselves. When Ganondorf reemerges, however many years later, it's mentioned to be at least a few, he uh, is effectively unopposed. I mean, yeah, the, the, the Knights of Hyrule are fighting back against his minions, but they are defenseless against him. Now, your first thought is, oh gosh, that's horrible, and that is certainly a valid thought. But as I mentioned way over here, it is interesting that uh, people... One of the the overall theme, there are several overarching themes in Wind Waker. One of those themes is the idea of being too lot, you know, trapped in the past, right, and being unable to move on into the future. Both Daphne and Ganondorf have this exact same problem. He even admits that. But one of the other related themes is being so reliant on fate and destiny and the great trifles and the goddesses above. They will save us that nobody takes ownership of themselves. They don't actually do things for themselves. And this is demonstrated right here at the intro where we discover that the, the, the world of old, Hyrule, was lost because no one was willing to really do anything to defend themselves. You know, you might be like, well, how, what the heck they do against that power? I, I point out that Link, this Link, who is my favorite Link, by the way, didn't have any destiny pushing him forward. He didn't have any great bloodline of Hyrule. Uh, virtually every other Link could be said to either be of the bloodline or have the Triforce within them or uh, be destined hero or be a fated hero or whatever. This Link was just a kid who cared about his sister. And that's it. He was just a kid who decided to actually do something. And you see this quite a bit in the, uh, in the modern era of Wind Waker. Several people... Uh, mostly the younger generation, are willing to do things in order to actually accomplish things, whereas several of the older generation are, are content to sit around and wait for someone else to fix their problems. This is present even in side quests in Wind Waker. Probably my favorite example of that is the, uh, the kidnapped daughters and the rich-slash-poor men. Um, so yeah, I, I love this, this presentation of Link. Um, he is... He's very emotive. The... the the thing they did with the face and the cell shading allows him to show a fairly large amount of expression. And he does come across as extremely flawed. He does feel like an ant running around a, a city street. You know what I mean? He's like, oh god, what's this? Ah, look at this. Oh. The fact that he manages to keep up is kind of part of the appeal there. Again, he's just a kid, but he, by virtue of actually trying, accomplishes it. Remember, he had to go find the Triforce of Courage. But to refresh my point, Anybody could have gone and found the Triforce of Courage. He was just the one who actually bothered to do it, you know? And I think that's uh, part of the appeal there. I also like the fact that he, um... He, he, he... It, <laughs> he embodied the ideal of courage before even knowing what a Triforce was. What happens right at the beginning of the game? Oh god, my sister's been kidnapped, and and, and Helmorok King is, is flying off, and he literally just... Eh, yeah, and he lunges after her, and Tetra actually has to grab him so he doesn't fall off the cliff. No hesitation, no, no, no thought to his own safety, no selfishness or whatever. Just immediate selfless. I'm going to go help her. Oh yeah, I can't. And then he tries to invade the the Forbidden Fortress with little more than a dinky little dagger, effectively, and uh, a broken old shield, and that's that's it. I mean, really, do I even have to explain anything there? Um, now, uh, one other interesting little tidbit here. The, I mentioned the whole not letting go of the past thing. Um, I have actually, when I was playing this on the stream, I compared this game several times, actually, to Fallout. Hear me out. I mean, they're both post-apocalypses. That, that, that's undisputed. But the interesting thing is both of them share several other aspects of that concept. 
the a lot of the problems of both the Fallout series and Wind Waker are caused because of people who are unwilling to let go of the past, people who are insisting on clinging to it as if it was some kind of lifeline. It was the only thing that actually mattered. And we see this even in a mundane, everyday, cultural way of the people who still venerate the hero of time from days of old. And whenever a child comes of age, they wear the green tunic and they... they they will, for just for their birthday, for their coming of age birthday, they will wear this tunic and they will get to, and it's a sign of them being, um, becoming an adult. I mean, I mean, do I even have to, it's so ingrained in their culture that you are not an adult until you are wearing the tunic of the hero of time. Think about that for a moment. Think about how much these people venerate the old. Think about how much they, they cling to it as if it's the only thing that, that, that gives their pur them purpose or allows them to function in their society. And they keep around the, the hero's sword, which of course is not fee. We'll find fee later. And they keep the, you know, the, the crest of Hyrule and all that fun stuff. This is also wonderfully ironic since they have actually lost the language, and yet they haven't. What I mean by this is the Hylian language, the ancient Hylian language as it's referred to, is something that is so lost that no one actually knows how to speak it anymore other than the people who remember it from the days of old. And yet, people constantly use the Hylian language in their writing all over the place in, in tons and tons of ways across the entire game. I'm not going to list them all. And, so, and, and some people are like, well, that's kind of odd. But if you think about it, it makes perfect sense. It's very easy to lose the language, the verbal spoken language of how to say and what to say and what it means and yet still keep the written language there are several languages in real life we have this exact same problem with where we have no idea how to speak or pronounce or whatever but we still have the ability to write out its alphabet and understand what it means at least to some extent of course an alternate interpretation of that is they keep using the Hylian language with no idea of what it means they're just using it because it's ancient Hylian both of these make the same point however and that's the clinging to the past problem the, um, now, uh, like I said, I'm just going to go down my list here. Uh, I, I want to talk about this now because this is probably my favorite aspect of Wind Waker. The setting. Now, each Zelda game tends to have one of the five aspects of story that it is strongest in. In my opinion, uh, this one would be setting. The, the world that Wind Waker has created is immensely fascinating. I've been asked many times, I've asked my friends many times, I ask you this question, if you were dropped into a Zelda world, you know, which one do you pick? We, you know, which was Zelda timeline, you know what I mean? Into one of the points in the games. Which would you pick? My pick is usually Wind Waker because it's just such an amazing, incredible, fleshed out world. Now, it fe first of all, it has that FF9 effect, which I'm just going to keep using that term, where it feels like a living, breathing world. There's lots of, of depth to it. There's lots of people to it. There's every day events, there's lives, there's a day-night cycle, there's tons of different islands, there's lot, there's the postman, you know. There's lots of things that make it feel like a place where people actually live rather than just a game. The second thing that I love about it is, again, that post-apocalyptic uh, thing. This is a world that has managed to endure and survive the Great Flood. Uh, I'll talk more about that a little bit later. But I love the idea of it because it's a completely different take on the usual post-apocalyptic thing. You know, Fallout 1 and Fallout 3 both looked at the post-apocalyptic and were like, oh, look at how horrible thing is and how much we have to struggle to survive. Wind Waker, by contrast, looks at the post-apocalyptic and says, look at how we uh, make do with what we have. You know, it, it doesn't feel that much like a post-apocalyptic situation, even though it is because the the intent is not focused on the despair and the depression and the struggle it's more on the everyday life with what we have now the limited aspect of of the society the the extremely limited land and the 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 availability of the the prolif, uh, prolific nature of the the sea travel the fact that only the birds who actually can fly are the ones who who carry information to and fro the entire uh, ceremony that the Rito go through you know there's tons of this all over the place it's great i love it it also shows the general codependence uh, these islands, all these different islands have on each other. You know, they cannot exist. They can't function uh, without, the other, without each other. There's no such thing as the possibility of an isolationist island because they literally need the resources, the people, the, the, the crafting, the food from the other islands in order to survive. And I like that. I love the, the, the unique... This circumstance that is built up around it. Which brings me to another thing I like about the setting, uh, the pirates. 
for those of you who don't know, in real life, pirates are really, 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 really disgusting, terrible people. In most fiction, pirates are, you know, fairly romanticized. You know, freedom, ah, I mean, yeah, we steal stuff, but freedom. In this setting, they are neither of those things. Uh, I use the word adventurers to describe what pirates are, and there are several settings that basically mean, have different words for what is effectively the same thing. Adventurers, the people who go out and, and do the things that no one else is willing to do. They fight the fights, they have their own ship, or they have their own, their own crew, and they go through dungeons, or they go through the areas, you know, blah, blah, blah. Now, yes, there is some pirating that the pirates actually do, but for the most part, you might as well just call them adventures and leave it. Uh, probably the best example of this is FF12, which has the Sky Pirates, which basically don't do any pirating at all. They just That's just the term for them. Maybe they're pirating the sky? That might be it. I don't know. Um, I also... Uh, I mentioned... Okay, so... Um, yeah, another interesting thing is there's just... A, the presentation of Tetra in this story is is awesome, and I actually really like it. This is probably, uh, I'd say, tied for my favorite Zelda with two others. The one from Twilight Princess, for reasons we'll get into, and the one from Spirit Tracks, for reasons we'll get into. Um, but I think I like her most because she is an active, willing character who is more than capable of taking care of herself and still has, you know, it doesn't fall into the tomboy uh, cl cliche per se, but actually has additional depths to her character. Not too many depths, but, you know, nonetheless. And, of course, that I have to be in the interest of honesty. I have to th admit that that is all thrown completely out the window the moment it's revealed that she's Zelda. And she's like, oh, God! And she basically stops existing as a character until the very very last fight in the game, at which point she becomes awesome again and remains so throughout the duration, but whatever. Um, the... Let's see, what else have we got here? Um, uh, speaking of the old clinging to the old thing, the Forbidden Fortress itself shows two things, I think. Uh, again, this is a water world, an, uh, an oceanic world for all intents and purposes at this point in time, or at least an oceanic setting, because we know there's other continents, which... Um, so the very existence of something like the Forbidden Fortress showcases the sheer amount of opulence and, and, and what is at Ganondorf's fingertips, what he can accomplish. But it also showcases his lack of adaptability. A fortress doesn't really fit in an oceanic world, not like this. It, that's something that fits in a world of land. Right, I, I could go into the tactical perspective and the architectural perspective and the logistical perspective of why that's true, but regardless, you don't really do a fort in the ocean unless you're doing it in to be a naval fort. And the Forbidden Fortress is not a naval fort; it's very distinctly a land-based fort. Which it's a nice little touch showcasing that Ganondorf. You know, one of the first things he does once he gets up to the, the ocean is he makes a fortress. That is, yeah, um, makes sense though. Uh, one other, speaking of Ganondorf, uh, I want to mention something really quick. Uh, I've heard several people call him Fat Ganondorf. Uh, maybe this is just a matter of perspective, but I don't see it at all. Really, I don't. Uh, if you actually look at him and she see how his body is shaped and see the overall style of, of the game, you know, the, the aesthetic thing I already mentioned, no, I'm pretty sure the intent is just to show him as very muscular. Um... For those of you who watched my Old Republic run, you remember how we had Gilfaberry, the agent, uh, who was the the, bot, the huge body type? Um, as I pointed out then, that individual was not fat. In fact, he, has, he, had, he was less fat than I am in real life. He was large, lots of muscle, lots of bulk. That is a body type that real people have. That's not fat. <laughs> There's nothing about that that's fat, so I'm just... Anyways, um, speaking of the Forbidden Fortress... So, the forced stealth section. On the one hand, I, go, I look at a forced stealth section, and my response is just, ugh, really? But I feel like Wind Waker did it pretty well, because they did a couple of things. First of all, they allow you to make shortcuts, so you can you know, get back fairly easily. And second of all, they give you a degree of agency on whether or not you're going to be spotted or not. And at the same time, they did several things wrong. Like, for example, instantaneous failure rate. You know, if you get seen, it doesn't matter if you can get around the corner or you can get through the door. You're seen, it's over, screw you. You have to go through the whole animation and everything, and you're flung back to the beginning. Also, it's they, they, they make the camera go every time you're, you're, you're spotted. And the, the sound effect I'm with, the, the camera panning I'm not, because there have been several times, 
and this playthrough is no exception, where the camera swiveling to look at the, the moblin who has caught me completely threw me, and I was still walking in a direction, and I ended up getting caught because of how uh, disorienting that was. Um, so uh, one of the other interesting things about Wind Waker is it follows a classic act structure, in a good way, I mean. Uh, the first act it pretty much terminates when you get the boat, uh, the, the Red Lion King of Daphne, etc., so it's like, hey, you know, it, and it leads almost very literally, very linearly into your classic exposition moment. And it's funny because this exposition is only relevant for the immediacy. It's not a Dumbledore moment where all the plot of the entire thing is dumped on you. There is no such moment in Wind Waker. Rather, this is the moment in which he's just, you know, explaining, okay, well, look, here's what's going on. Here's what we got to do next. <laughs> um, oh, yeah, by the way, spoiler alert, the, the boat is actually the King of Hyrule. Um... The, uh, I do like, uh, the fact that they, they basically give you access to the boat to being able to save very early on. I hate the fact that they very limit you in what you can do because there's not really anything that says that until you try to go exploring. Basically, the way it works is, you know, there's the map and there's each quadrant. In the first chunk of the game, for the first two dungeons, you can only sail in these quadrants. If you try to go in any other quadrant, the king says, we can't go this way. We should go to our destination, which is this place, and then literally forces you to turn around. That irritates the crap out of me. I would rather it had just been there been a cutscene where you go to the next island, and then a cutscene where you go to the next island, and then give us the sailing mechanic once we reach the exploration point, or the freedom point. Uh, those of you who've watched my Final Fantasy in-depth reviews and anything I've talked about in that matter know that what I, what I mean when I say the freedom point. In other words, I can now go and do whatever. Uh, now, I will say this for Wind Waker. The freedom point in Wind Waker is actually very early on. Basically, as soon as you finish the second dungeon, you can do a lot of things in the game. And once you finish uh, the first run, excuse me, the second run through the Forbidden Fortress, you can do basically everything in the game. And uh, I like that. I like the fact that this game has tons of freedom, which brings me to another point of Wind Waker that I know is a little bit of a controversial opinion. I like the sailing. I really do. Now, let's make this clear. I feel that the inclusion of the swift sail was a good thing. The changing the wind gimmick makes sense for some of the puzzles, but for sailing back in the GameCube, after a while it lost any of the charm and it just felt like it was padding. But I will say that with the swift sail, which just automatically turns the wind for you, that problem just vanishes. Another good reason why I like the HD version. Um, so I really enjoy the sailing mechanic. It really helps make it feel like this is a world you can explore. Uh, I, did, I think I actually forgot to mention this in my Ocarina video, but one of the things that was great about Ocarina was there was that exploration moment of, oh my god, here's Hyrule Field and it's huge, look at all this stuff you can explore. Because you get the, the impression that the Zelda developers have been wanting that here's a world to explore feeling for a long time. It could be argued that that was the feeling of the very first Legend of Zelda. You know, I, I mean, as we've mentioned before, uh, only a few of the Zeldas are very nonlinear. One of those Zeldas that is very nonlinear is the first one. I mean, you, could, you go out and it's like, all right, well, I've got the sword. I can go do a lot of stuff now that I have the sword. You know, there's a few limitations. You need the raft. You need the ladder. You need the bow. But other than that, you can just do whatever. Here's the world. Have fun, you know? And uh, so I feel like this is probably one of their best games to really embrace that. Again, still haven't played Link Between Worlds. Um, to embrace that feeling of, oh, world. And I, I, I don't know why, but the seamless transition just, just really, really helps flesh it out for me. I don't even know how to explain how much this is a thing for me. I actually bought Assassin's Creed 4, the Black Flag, literally just because you have a ship and you can sail to an island and you can hop off the ship and go to the island and hop back on the ship. Just the seamless transition ship to shore thing sold me. I don't even know how to explain why that is so awesome for me. Um, this is something I've been wanting in like a space type game for forever, actually, which we'll never get. But, um, I, I mean, you guys know how much of a ship guy I am in general. The ability to just sail wherever, to just find whatever spit of land you see and, and just, well, I wonder what this is, and hop on his, oh, it's one of Tingle's towers. Tingle, you bastard. You know, you can just do that. You can just, you can just roam. You can just, I love it. I love the explorative nature of it. And you're basically always rewarded, too. That's another nice touch. There's no such thing as an island in the game where you don't get at least something for having gone there or for figuring out what it is or for exploring it or whatever. And then, of course, that's even true for, like, the little shanties you see here and now and the, the other ships and, and the, the submarine and just... I love it. I love how filled, how, how full the world of Wind Waker feels. 
if I could use a direct comparison, this is exactly what Skyward Sword did wrong. They had the sky area, right, around Skyloft, and Skyloft itself was pretty full, and there was like the two other major islands, and that was basically it. It was empty. Yeah, okay, you can fly around, but there's nothing to do, and there's nothing to see, there's nothing to explore. And so it failed in exactly the same way that Skyward, uh, that Wind Waker succeeded. Because Wind Waker would be very boring if it wasn't as full as it is, if there weren't as many random barrels popping up, if there weren't the random encounters, if there weren't the ships, if there weren't the little shanties, if there weren't the islands, which all have stuff, you know. Speaking of which, another thing I like, they do this trick. I forget what it's called. I've talked about this trick many times. Just Cause 2 uh, uses this exact same trick. Basically, there's a low, uh, low geometry, uh, very easy-to-render mesh of islands, like all the islands, basically, on the overworld map. And once you get within a certain range, then it actually loads the actual island with the actors and the mods and the objects and all that on top of it. So if you are standing, I demonstrated on the stream, if you're standing on uh, Windfall Island and you look around, you can see all the other islands that are on, on, the, on the horizon there and actually be like, well, there's a dot over there. There's a speck in that direction. Let's go. Let's see what it is. Which, again, adds to that explorative nature. It is literally, you, you can just pick a spot on the horizon and go to it to see what it is. I love that. Um, so that's that's awesome. Forgive me for gushing. Um, it's funny, though, because that whole explorative thing, I do feel, weaves into the narrative as well. For those of you not aware, this game will lead directly into Phantom Hourglass, which we'll talk about in its own time. And then that leads into Spirit Tracks. Now, the plot of Spirit... Well, the, 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 the backstory of Spirit Tracks is they took their ships, they sailed off, and they said, we're leaving. We're leaving this land. We're going to go try and find a new land, some place that isn't just constant ocean. We're going to find a new place to... to, to to put in roots. And they do, and they find this new land that is the realm of spirit tracks. Um, that whole abandoning the past, well, not abandoning the past, but moving on, basically. Uh, moving on is different from abandoning. Moving on is taking the lessons learned and using those to go forward. Abandoning is probably the, is the opposite extreme of clinging to the past. Neither of those are really good, I think. But the point is, they move on, they find the new land, you know. That feeling of seeing what's on the horizon, the exportive, I feel it weaves into that concept of seeing what's out there, of trying what other people haven't, of, of accomplishing things that others haven't even bothered to try. You know, I like that. Um, uh, sailing, yes. <laughs> um, what else we got here? Uh, oh, okay, so let's talk about a couple other things. Um, again, I'll, I'll discuss the Great Flood basically last. It's the thing I feel I have the most to talk about, or at least the most controversial thing to talk about. Um, so the Zora were actually transformed into the Rito, but they weren't given wings. Um, <laughs> this, this is either negligence or deliberate hampering. There's really no other way to interpret that, uh, because they specifically bound these Rito now into to Valu, the, the, the wind... Uh, dragon, which is, uh, by all intents and purposes, a descendant of Volvagia, which I find hilarious. Uh, but then again, Volvagia probably kind of was evil because of the, the nature and the circumstances and the world he was in. Valu is a lot less horrible. Anyways, um, so yeah, the reason they were changed is hilarious. Because the entire purpose of the bubble around Hyrule and the ocean being top, pushed on top of it was so that no one could do go down to Hyrule. The implication here is that if you could literally just hold your breath and swim down for a while, you would reach Hyrule, and then you'd plummet to your death, because you'd come out of the bubble and... Ah. But um, but I like the uh, the implication there, because the, the goddesses were so concerned with Hyrule being sealed off, they tr completely, utterly transformed the surviving Zora, so they couldn't get down there. I love that. Uh, I do like the cultural implications of the having to go to Valu, to get your wings thing. I, I mean, it, it is, again, what it is. But it also demonstrates that point I mentioned earlier, making do with what we have. Well, yeah, it sucks that we don't have wings when we're born. And yeah, it sucks that we can't swim anymore, although nobody probably knows that. But what's even better is is that, well, now we can go to Valu and as a coming-of-age ceremony, we can say, you know, please, we have... We beseech ye, give us our blessing, and he can say, yes, I, here, is, here is my scale. Use it to grant your wings, young man and or woman. Go forth and be free. You know, I, I like the cultural uh, touches to that. Speaking of cultural touches, and again, this is tied into the, the Koroks, which were once upon a time the Kokiri. 
I postulate that the Korok is the natural form of the Kokiri, that the Kokiri were maintaining human-ish form pretty much solely because of the influences of either the fairy, the Deku tree, or the woods that they were in. All three of those are effectively removed from influence uh, as of Wind Waker, so I feel like the Koroks that are remained are naturally Kokiri. It wouldn't even surprise me that much if these are some of the same you know, Kokiri, that, that some of these Koroks were once Kokiri, that they don't age. I don't know if that's true or not, but it, it would be the kind of thing that wouldn't surprise me. Um, but it makes sense for what the Kokiri were, which was effectively nature spirits for all intents and purposes. Uh, this is another reason why I, I have often considered the Minish to be the origination of the Kokiri. Again, just my theory on the matter. That like, like they get more and more influenced by the, the mundane world to take the form of the Kokiri. And then all of that stuff that was maintaining them in mundane form goes away, so they go back to being, you know... Uh, the the full on plant spirits, except now they've changed again because of the nature of the reality changing around them. I also love their big cultural thing, going forth to settle seeds in order to grow plants in order to try and reclaim the ocean. I love that. Number one, it's a it's once again another aspect of the clinging to the past thing. But another great thing about it is, it's great because it's so futile. Can you imagine how many years upon years these these Koroks have been going around seeding these plants in order to try and reclaim more land? And nothing... And I mean, they've failed. They have failed for so long. They have been accomplishing nothing in all these times and all these years of however long they've been doing this. But it makes sense for, you know, what are effectively wood, nature, plant, spirits in order to do something like that. And I don't think it's completely futile. Because, again, they're making do with what they have. I think it's actually very likely that one of the reasons the islands are as prosperous as they are and they have the resources and the wood and the, and the food and the shade that they do in order to survive is because of this reseeding of the trees. It is possible, if we take ourselves out for a moment and look at it from a setting perspective, a world-building perspective, that this is the only reason that this society continues to function at all is because of the replanting of the seeds. Because it's entirely possible that the, there's just not an ecosystem sufficient to support the plant life re refreshing itself. You know what I mean? Uh, it's entirely possible that there's simply not enough in, in terms of insects, in terms of animals. I mean, it, it, plants by themselves will not propagate. That's not how that works. They need, a, they, they need an ecosystem to keep functioning. So I feel like this is kind of a, a, a unique form of... Uh, maintained terraforming that would rot without it uh, but that's just my thoughts on the matter um, second page less than the first so uh, I think Goma the, the Goma here I just I just have this note here this is like my favorite Goma of all the Gomas she's awesome she's powerful we smash her in the face with giant chunks of rock over and over and yeah, she's just she's just generally cool. I, basically, the point I want to make here is, and I wish I had more to say individually, but I'm not, you know, doing an in-depth review here. Uh, each of the dungeons is pretty awesome. There's not really any dungeon I don't like in Wind Waker, and there's not really any boss I don't like in Wind Waker. They're all awesome. They have all got some fun stuff and uh, shrug. Now, uh, I do like the fact that the Deku tree which is the Sproutling from Ocarina of Time, by the way, for, those, for the three of you who don't know that, um, mistakes you for Link initially, for the Hero of Time. Uh, <laughs> that just says a lot. It's funny because uh, he's not the only one to do that. And he looks at you and is like, oh my god, it's, it's you! Wait, you have no idea what I'm saying, do you? Which, which, which goes back to that losing the language thing I mentioned earlier. But he actually he can tell you're not Link because you can't understand him. That's, that's a nice touch. Um... As the I, so I mentioned oh wow I have uh, so yeah tingle uh, I made a note here did you know that you need one thousand three hundred and forty five rupees in the uh, in the HD version which is less in order to complete his stupid and terrible quest for the freaking things I was talking about this actually in the Minecraft run we did recently for uh, for uh, story mode Minecraft story mode I do have to admit someone who could make accurate charts and actually do good map making, topography, that kind of thing, would probably be someone who is a very valued person and has the ability to command the kind of, well, frankly, political power that Tingle has. And I know that's such a weird statement, but if you think about it, Tingle is in a position of significant political power in this setting. He can command any price he wants. He has a complete monopoly on the maps and the charts, basically. 
And on top of that, he's the kind of person who can just boss other people around into being into doing whatever he wants to, and he's kind of a dick about it. And this is probably the most insidious tingle, and this is the tingle I actively want to just punch in the face. Not just because of the fact that he gouges the heck out of you for money, but the fact that he literally press gangs people into service in order to keep his tingle uh, posts going so that everyone knows, oh, go to come to tingle, I'm awesome. I mean, it's just self-aggrandizement at that point. And it's just him flexing how much you know sway he has. And I, I just want to punch him in a stupid face. He's also much ruder in general. His overall tone of speech is much less, you know, ah, I'm a child, or at least I'm a guy who still thinks I'm a child like he was in Majora. In this case, he's more like, ah, oh, I'm a dick. Screw you. Um, <laughs> the, um, so screw him. I also want to mention one other thing. The, the presentation of the great fairies in this game is my personal favorite of the great fairies across the entire series. They are human enough without being too human and they are inhuman enough without being too inhuman. They really hit the middle point there for me. They don't even have legs, the forearms, the faces whose features aren't quite right, you know. And I, I just love it. It is exactly what I think of when I think of something like Great Fairies. I, I just felt like commenting on that. So final thoughts here. Yeah, I know. We're already done. I've just, I told you I don't have much to say. I like the fact that... Uh, one of the other themes I mentioned earlier, the making do with what you had, one of the themes that's, that's tied into that in Wind Waker is the concept of life goes on. I know this sounds weird, but in many ways, virtually every Zelda game could be seen as a parallel for growing up. Um, in some cases, more strongly than others. In some cases, it's the deliberate theme in the game. Uh, and I, as I've said, I believe Ocarina of Time is one of the games that most strongly feels that theme. But this is still another game that has that theme in it. And part of growing up is looking at the past and saying, well, that sucks, that happened. But now it's time to move on, you know? A parallel I tend to use for this in real life is ashes. Think about it this way. The past is ash upon your back, okay? Now, you don't want to abandon it. Like I said earlier, you don't want to completely just ignore the past and not learn from the past. But if you just let the past sit on your back, you're just going to slowly get weighed down by more and more of this ash that is just affecting every aspect of your life. And you get the point? So you let the ash fall off your back. You remember it. You, move, you, you learn from it, but you move on. It's the idea that we look at the situation and they say, well, we could sit around saying how much this sucks and how much better things used to be. Or we could make do with what we have and try to move on from it. It's everywhere in the game. Every NPC, every every side quest I saw. I, I thought about making a list and just going down the list, but really, I'm just going to summarize it. It's everything. It's every character who is named. It's every major side quest. The plot itself, aspects of the entire setting development. You know, it's everywhere. And it is funny to me that the ultimate act of moving on does, is not created until people try to cling to the past. Let me explain what I mean. Daphne is, in my opinion, just as flawed as Ganondorf is. I mean that sincerely. Or is it Daphne's? I forget there's a, if there's an S there, but whatever, the king. Um, because his stubborn refusal to move on, his insistence on clinging to the way things used to be, is in many ways responsible for just as responsible as Ganondorf's actions uh, that lead to the events of the game, that lead to, you know, you must do this, you must get the Master Sword, you must get the piece of the Triforce, you must defeat Ganondorf, you must free Hyrule. You know, it's, it's just, at every point in time, he is pushing you forward. And Link and Tetra are so naive to the reality of the fact that this man is flawed and frankly leading them down a bad path just, just, they're just, okay, yeah, we'll go do this. You're our friend. We trust you. We care about you. No, we got this. And I, you see where I'm going with this direction. Um, I also, uh, I, I love it because the, he, at no point in time does he actually inform them of the whole situation. Ganondorf actually tells us most of what we learn about what happened. Let's think about this for a moment. This is my big point right here. This is all tied in, so I'm just going to hit it in, in a morass of discussion. The goddesses are bastards. I'm just going to pause for a minute for you for you guys to, to go ahead and flame me for this. It's okay. 
let's look at the situation here. How many times in the entirety of the whole Zelda series have the three goddesses actually come down and done something? Now, my memory is not perfect, but I can only think of twice this has happened ever, counting this moment. It's funny because when I was originally analyzing the, the backstory and the timeline of this, it naturally occurred to me, like immediately, that what was actually happening was that the king of Hyrule had used the Triforce and he had wished for Hyrule to be saved and he had done so with, you know, not the best of intentions, you know, with, with an evil heart, basically. And so Hyrule was saved, right? Well, and then I actually went back and looked. I was like, well, no, that's not actually what happened. He, he didn't have access to the whole Triforce. Ganondorf still had the Triforce of, of Power, and the Triforce of Courage was shattered all over the place because of the fact that the person who was carrying it left. So all he had was wisdom. <laughs> so the point is, he had to have actually deliberately and, and, and basically reached out to the goddesses themselves who had to directly intervene, which, again, they basically never do. They always work through their agents. They're always content to let whatever happens happen because, eh, whatever, you know. They're totally fine with someone like Ganondorf getting hold of their power and doing whatever he wants with it. Creating the Dark World and destroying Hyrule for seven years and all the other crap that happens. They're fine with that. They don't give a damn. So why did they intervene in this one moment? Well, the answer is actually obvious. Because they like to work through their pawns. They have this whole cyclical thing going on, and they're totally okay with the cycle continuing. Power, courage, wisdom. And yet, in this moment, there was no courage. No, there, the hero of time had been forcibly removed from reality, thanks to Zelda's mistake, and so there, the cycle was completely broken. And they were like, oh crap, oh crap, okay, we gotta reset the cycle somehow, quick! Destroy everything! I, I mean... <laughs> <laughs> admittedly we don't know how bad things would have been under Ganondorf's rule and they probably would have been bad I mean we saw what happened in Ocarina right but um the, the post-apocalyptic society of Wind Waker happens because the apocalypse was caused by the three goddesses they did it they flooded the realm they're the ones who sealed away Hyrule and forced everyone to live on the islands they're the ones who prevented the Zora from ever being able to reach Hyrule. They're the ones who sealed everything down there in the time and ensured that Fee would be locked away. They're the ones who did all this crap. I mentioned earlier the over-reliance on Link. That nobody was willing to do anything for themselves. I feel like this is the exact same mentality presented in the three. That they literally look down and they say, eh... We're not willing, we're not willing, either because of laziness or because of apathy or because of genuine malevolence. I mean, I don't know. I'm just speculating here. I, if I was to, to put number on it, I would say it's apathy. They don't care. They've got their own things and their own problems and they don't care unless they actually have to intervene because their tools are not present, like I said. So it's that same concept. Yeah, we need a Link. We need a Zelda. We need a Ganondorf. We need the three aspects, or else it just isn't going to work. Ugh. Irritating. Um, I also do like the fact that uh, Ganondorf basically creates the situation for courage and wisdom to be found and brought to him. Now, of course, he did that on purpose. He needed the Triforce whole again so he could get rid of this, this seal and, uh, and you know, return Hyrule to its, to its prominence and whatever it is he was actually planning to do after that. We don't really know. I mean, obviously he was pl probably planning to conquer Hyrule, but then what? I mean, really, at this point in time, keep in mind Ganondorf politically and militarily is so much stronger than everyone else that everyone else doesn't even register on the same radar as him. So yeah, okay, Conquer Hyrule. Done! Okay, now what? I do find myself speculating a lot on what Ganondorf would have done. It's like, okay, I won! See, the thing I find interesting about this, this Ganondorf and the Ganondorf and Twilight Princess both really help flesh the character out a lot. Because we see in this Ganondorf, and I said I'd talk about this uh, in Ocarina, we see in this Ganondorf the man who actually learned a little bit of humility. Because he lost. He went through all the work. He, he conquered Hyrule. He 
you know, all the events of Ocarina of Time happen, seven years of, of, of success and domination, and then he has it, he's defeated, and oh, I'll come back, and he's smarter this time. He learned. He learned. He adapted. He grew. He came back. He, he murdered the sages. He went straight for the king. He's like, ha, where's... And this whole time he's expecting Link to show up, the hero of time to show up. Of course he doesn't. So he he learned, he adapted, he uh, and then he he lost again, you know, got sealed away, and so when, when he finally gets himself back out, I mean, he's still a villain, absolutely. I don't want to be like excusing his actions here, but he is definitely a much more well developed character as a result of that. He has more sympathy factors to him. He has more empathy factors to him. There's more of a person underneath the villain there. In in Ocarina of Time, he was pretty much straight up villainy, and I've already discussed many of my reasons for thinking that. And he flat out mentions his whole, you know, I, I wanted the kingdom of Hyrule. I wanted the, the prosperity for my people. And I, I find myself wondering if he would continue towards that I want things to be prosperous mentality in this, you know, in this new era if he had actually successfully conquered Hyrule. Because we know he didn't do that in Ocarina. When he successfully conquered Hyrule in Ocarina, he led it to ruin and he screwed over his own people. He's left his people out in the desert. He didn't make this new era of prosperity. He became self-centered, self-focused, self-interested. Well, and in all honesty, that is probably because of Demise's influence. That, that, that hatred seeping in there and allowing him to become poisoned like that. But the Ganondorf by the time of Wind Waker, I don't think any of that influence remains. I think that his experiences and what he's been through have taught him to just kind of move on from that. Now, he's still a villain. He's still self-interested. He still wants to be on the top of the heap. But I actually postulate if it, what kind of world we would have made, like I said, if he had succeeded. The interesting thing about Wind Waker is Fee, the Master Sword, uh, Ganondorf, Hyrule, and the King of Hyrule and all that, and the Triforce itself basically go away in this timeline as of Wind Waker. Phantom Hourglass and Spirit Tracks, which continue on the story, basically have nothing to do with it. Some people have argued that Phantom Hourglass and Spirit Tracks should not be considered Zelda games because they are so absent these fundamental aspects of Zelda. Uh, I don't agree, obviously. Um, but it is interesting that the, the entire point of Wind Waker was trying something new, a very meta thing if you think about it. You know, the entire point of not clinging to what Zelda should be, could be, but instead using it as a springboard to try something completely new and different. It's one of the things I like most about Wind Waker is the fact that it, it, it is very much a different Zelda, but it is a different Zelda because of its ties to previous Zeldas. It is it is integrally tied into Ocarina. It is the close it is an absolute closest thing to a true sequel to Ocarina. Twilight Princess is affected by Ocarina. Majora's Mask happens after Ocarina. But this one this one directly is a direct sequel to the events of that game. It is, it, I mean, it may be centuries later or whatever, but all of the events here happened because of all of the events there. Are you with me? Um, but it does all of that to springboard into something new, to try new stuff, this new setting, this new society, this new culture, these new themes, and of course, moving on in the end from all of these, leaving Hyrule behind, which it does in the next two games. Um... I also, uh, I just, I, I got a gush about the last fight. This is one of my favorite final bosses of all time, the final boss of Ganondorf here. It's, the setting is perfect. You're on the top of Ganondorf's tower. The seal has been broken, and the ocean that is up there above you, above the air bubble, is actually starting to pour in. And so it's pouring rain, and there's ocean coming down forever, and there's thunder and lightning, and you're on top of this tower, and the wind is just buffeting all over the place because of all the, the, the displacement, because of the water pouring down. And you're fighting Ganondorf, dual-wielding his massive swords of awesome, uh, alongside Zelda. The two of you are literally co-oping against him. It's a great fight. But the scene that leads right up to it also is interesting to me. Because it's the scene where Ganondorf cracks. We see what happens when both Ganondorf and Daphne's... Daphne? Whatever. The king abandon the past. When they finally get to the point where they let go. Ganondorf loses it. And it makes sense why. After all he's done and after all he's grown and after all he's learned, he finally succeeds. It's like, oh god, I'm finally going to get the Triforce. We're going to undo all of this. You know, I, I've often theorized that he would have let both Tetra and Link live because he had no reason to kill them and because of everything I said earlier about his character growth. So, you know, it's, oh, I'm finally going to do this and we're finally going to move on. And it is snatched from him at the last second. For the third time in his history, Ganondorf loses. But more than that, 
everything he's ever done in his whole life, which has been a long life, let's let's remember, this is the same Ganondorf from Ocarina of Time. It has been however many centuries since then. This man has been doing everything this entire time to try and accomplish this goal, and not only has it been taken from him, it has been taken from him in a permanent way. It's gone. There's no reclaiming it. And his life has just accomplished nothing. Everything he's always worked for is just ash now. And he just completely snaps. The, the, the huge props to the voice actor who does his laugh after after the king makes his wish, because it is exactly right. It is someone who is just completely unhinged and no longer cares about anything. I think that's one of the reasons why he turns on Link and fights him. Because see, one of the interesting things about Ganondorf and his inability to let go of the past, Ganondorf refused to stop being. A villain even though he could have he had many opportunities tons of times where he could have just tried to try a new life tried to try to make the thing but he was adherent to the idea of being a villain maybe this is just me reading into it but i feel like he regretted being a villain but he felt like he had no choice because of that whole stuck in the past mentality because of this is the way things were therefore this is the way things are mentality i am a villain because i was a villain i i, I mention this because this is the only thing he has left in the very end. All he has left is his conflict with the hero of the of courage. This 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 link that is in front of him. That's all he's got left. And that's why he turns to fight you. Fine. Fine. This is the last act I will accomplish because this is the only thing that exists that is Ganondorf. And it's still a lie. You see? I almost think that he wanted to lose that fight. They'd be sealed in stone and stuck with this triforce, or with the triforce, right, with the master sword, literally in his forehead for all time. Yeah. And then, of course, the king. Last thing I got to talk about here, the king. When he lets go, he has kind of a different reaction. See, he was still adhering to his roles too. The king kept insisting on on Ganondorf being a villain as well. He has to be stopped. Blah blah blah. Um, and of course, Ganondorf was a villain, as we've already discussed. I wonder how much of his villainy is because the king was pushing him to do that, which was being pushed by Ganondorf, and the two of them were self-creating this, this, this cycle, basically. But when he finally lets go, he says he just lets go of everything. He doesn't lose it. He doesn't crack. He doesn't snap. He just slowly and sadly lowers his hand and accepts the fact that he is dead. He accepts death. He accepts his own termination and the termination of all he's ever loved and all he's ever known because it's all gone. And he knows that. He, he helped to make that happen. I mention this because this is also part about, a part of growing up. Moving on, starting anew, it's not always some great, fresh, vibrant adventure. It sucks sometimes. It hurts sometimes. And sometimes it just makes you sad and will continue to make you sad in the future. It's a part of living, really, is understanding and knowing that and embracing that so you can move on, just like they do, into Phantom Hourglass, which has nothing to do with any of this stuff, but more importantly, into Spirit Tracks, which has a lot to do with all this stuff. But we'll talk about those next week, where I will see you guys there.